We're in Mark, or Mark, Matthew 6. We'll start out with verse 1 and then read 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, their fasting may be seen, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You may be seated. Well, it is a blessing to be with the people of God again this morning. This morning, we are going to look at the third of the religious practices through which Jesus compared the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the true faithful action, the righteous action of his disciples or what his disciples should practice. Remember that when Jesus refers and points pointedly to the Pharisees as hypocrites, he is calling out these men that the average people looked upon with a sense of awe and reverence, that the average person looked to as the epitome of righteousness in man form. They were the most pious, the most faithful, the most studious, the most careful in their lives. This would have been controversial. This would have rattled some cages. Put in the, con- the modern vernacular, it would have been a spicy take. Well, we've already looked about how this true piety shows itself in giving to the poor and in prayer. Remember, those actions looked very different in the way that Jesus said his disciples were supposed to live them out and act them out, than it did in what they were used to seeing in the Pharisees. Well, after a couple of weeks break, in which we focused on the Lord's Prayer, or we could call it the Model Prayer, or I think Clay called it the Disciples' Prayer, and then focusing on the last statement that Christ gave after that, a warning about forgiveness. After taking a couple of weeks to focus on those, we return now to the third part of, of a three-part series on true piety. And we look at the third of those religious practices that Jesus distinguished from what his true disciples should live out against what the Pharisees did. And this time we'll be looking at fasting. Well, as we continue in worship, and before I dr- address our text before us today, I ask you to join me once more in prayer. Father, it is such a a mighty responsibility to proclaim from your word. And who is worthy of such a responsibility? Who can shoulder that weight? I do not stand here because I think I am able, but because I believe your spirit to be indwelling within me. And he is able to use weak, confused, broken vessels to pour out manna from heaven, 
food for the soul. Father, we, we gather for worship, we, we lead, we instruct, we teach. We do all these things not because we think that we are worthy to do so or we are up to the task of rightly proclaiming your name and leading your people in worship because we believe that you have promised that your spirit would come and move through us and that your spirit in each and every child of God would instruct, would hear, give eyes to see, ears to hear, that God's people might understand, that they might know God, they might love God, they might obey God. So Father, we simply call on you to do what we believe you have promised to do and that you delight to do. Change us. Break us. Fall whatever it takes upon us to make us more like Christ. For your glory and for our good. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know it has been a couple of weeks, but I'm trusting that you'll be able to remember how this whole section started. It was read for us this morning back in verse 1, where Jesus began this section of these religious practices that the disciples must not emulate the Pharisees in by warning them that they must not practice their good works before men. Meaning that they must not practice their good works in such a way that men would notice. They must not do so for the recognition of men. They must not do so for the praise of men. If they did, just like the Pharisees, they would have their reward in full. They would have everything they were ever going to have because of those righteous actions they would have in the praises and the smiles and the admiration of men. They would have nothing left to expect. They would have no joy from the Father, no gifts from the Father, nothing from the Father who is in heaven. That indeed is a strong warning, one that we must remember that as we perform the good works that were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, we must have that in our mind that we must do these things so that God will see, so that God will be pleased, not so that men will notice what we have done. I believe the same promise would apply there as well. This promise applies to giving to those in need, it applied to prayer. It applies equally to fasting. Well, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch for me to suggest that this religious practice, this spiritual discipline, this religious devotion of fasting is probably our least favorite that we are instructed about in Scripture. Well, even if we, are, if we don't like being generous with money, there are many of us at times that struggle to be generous, struggle to give sacrificially. And even if we struggle with that, we understand that it is a noble thing to do to give of what we have to care for those who have not, to care for those who have hit hard times or whom, on whom disaster has fallen. Even if it hurts and we don't like it, we know it's necessary. It makes sense. That's not too much of a reach for us to get. We see biblical examples all throughout Scripture 
We see how in the Old Testament, God commanded his people, the very way that they harvested their fields was determined such that the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow would have a way to go and gather food for themselves. It was built in throughout their national legal structure. We understand that all men have dignity because all men are made in the image of God. We understand that it is good and righteous to care for one another, to care for other people, other human beings made in the image of God when they are struggling, when they have fallen down, or when disaster has struck them. Prayer also is a spiritual discipline that even though we struggle with often, to be faithful and consistent with, we understand innately that prayer is important. How are we to grow in our relationship with God if we don't devote ourselves to prayer, if we don't spend time in prayer with him? Prayer makes sense. It's easy for us to see how a Christian is reliant on God and prayer is a primary means of us communing with God. So at least one element of prayer is even fairly natural to us. One element of prayer is even fairly natural to the lost around us. Even unbelievers will cry out to God when they are desperate enough, when they have nowhere else to turn, when disaster befalls them, even unbelievers will call out to God. Just think of the the common phrase that there are no atheists in a foxhole. When everything is on the line, even an unbelieving God-hating pagan will call out to God, save me. So, even if oft neglected, we understand almost instinctually the benefit of prayer. Well, what probably makes much less sense for us, however, is the discipline of fasting. Most professing Christians, while they at times will give money, will support some ministry or the other, and will pray, never practice fasting as a spiritual discipline in their lives. Just think, when was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you gave money to support your local church or another ministry, or you gave it to somebody directly who you know was in need to care for them? Okay. When's the last time you fasted? I think it's clear. For most of us, fasting is one of those things that we would like it if we could keep neat and tidy in the pages of Scripture. We would really like it if we could find a way to say fasting is just something that was done at once upon a time and it no longer has anything to do with us. But are we able to do that? This morning we are going to look at this passage that was read for us before where Jesus contrasts the fasting of the hypocrite with the fasting of his disciples. To help with that, we are going to look at just what fasting is. It doesn't do us any good to assume that we all understand what fasting is, especially when God has blessed us with so many children in our midst. We are also going to look at the practice of fasting in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And after that, we are going to end with some reasons that fasting maybe should become a regular part of our spiritual discipline. And when I say maybe should, by the end, I'm not going to be saying maybe. Just so you're prepared. Well, just as we saw earlier on in this this section of, of Scripture, when Jesus talked to his disciples about giving to the needy, Jesus does not command his disciples to fast. He didn't have to. He knew that his disciples already were practicing fasting. It was common enough enough among them that he could safely assume they practiced fasting. And so rather than bothering with to tell them to fast, he was able to move directly to point out how the Pharisees had made a mockery of this practice, as well as how his disciples could avoid that same mistake. Well, Jesus doesn't here, nor anywhere else do we find it in the New Testament, instruct us as to when, how often, and for how long his disciples should fast. In fact, fasting is only one time directly commanded by God to his people. Though, of course, we do find other accounts where it was called for by the leaders of the people and where it was added by the tradition to various holy days in Israel. Well, I believe what is clear from this text that Jesus was not addressing those kind of national fasts that any good Jew would practice. He wasn't talking about the fast on the Day of Atonement or any of the other high holy days. And it simply wouldn't make sense for that to be the case. On those occasions, the whole nation would be fasting. Everybody around them would be fasting. What reason would there be for, to try and get somebody else to take notice? If everybody was fasting on a given day and you looked pitiful, all you do is look like you can't handle it as well as everybody else. There is no glory to be gained from you in making a big deal about you doing something more poorly than everybody else around you. There'd be no reason to try and make them take notice. They would already know. When the Old Testament and the New Testament, individuals would, for various reasons that we will get to a little bit later, they would, for various reasons, fast in a way that they were doing it, they were practicing it, that others around them, unless they really knew them, and knew their life circumstances would have no idea about. Unless you knew the major events in someone's life, such as when they lost a loved one, you'd have no reason to suspect they might be fasting. At this point, and in this kind of community, it would have been very plausible that at any amount of time, any amount of time, there would have been a number of people in that community that would have been fasting, that there would have been all around them even though nobody knew about it. Well, as I said before, we will get into in just a little bit more into the reasons in the Old Testament and new about why people fasted. At this point, it's sufficient to say that Jesus expected his disciples to fast. And he expected them to fast in such a way that it was entirely possible for nobody around them to know that they were doing it. Well, before we get too far this morning, let's ask just that very basic question. 
As I said, we can't take for granted that everybody around us knows what fasting is. Don Whitney has a very simple definition I think will help us and serve us well. He said, fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Let me flush that out a little bit more for us. And today as we're discussing, we're going to be discussing Christian fasting in particular. Other religions have fasting as something that they call their people to. There are even certain health benefits to fasting that that unbelievers will, will seek and that they will practice unbelieving. Or they will practice fasting even though it's not uh, in worship of any deity. Christian fasting is the discipline in which a person chooses to refrain from eating food so that they might achieve a spiritual goal. It is when a person makes a conscious choice to deny their body something that is basic and necessary for life and health for a decided period of time in order that their mind and their spirit might in a unique and especially focused way be pointed towards prayer and God's word. Does that sound weird? Does this sound like something that we would only expect those on the very fringes of our religion to practice? Something only those kooks that want to go close themselves off in the wilderness and not see anybody, what they might practice? Would it shock you to know that fasting is discussed in the Bible more often than baptism? It's a loaded statement for a bunch of Baptists. In just a moment, we will go through a bunch of examples of different reasons that people fasted in the Scriptures. What we need to realize is that even if this is a foreign concept to us here and now in this present age, this is a practice with a rich tradition both in Scripture and in church history. Beloved, there is something almost supernatural about the way that hunger can focus the body and the mind. Something almost supernatural about how the way that real hunger can motivate a man, can drive them. Most of us, by God's grace, all of us, have never experienced a forced hunger brought on about by food shortages or poverty. But with the way things are going in this world, that may not be true in years to come or for our children. Then again, God may intervene. There have been many of times throughout history when this was the norm for the masses of people that food shortage and poverty drove them to serious hunger. In this fallen world, hunger and longing are the norm. They are built into the system. No longer is every want, is every need satisfied simply by being in God's good creation. For mankind, this is true for them both physically and spiritually. Though we have a much easier time identifying the problem and the solution for our physical needs. 
John Piper said that Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. The hunger of a homesickness for God. So at its foundation, the practice of Christian fasting uses physical hunger, real physical hunger, to help us understand and express our spiritual hunger for God. So you see the connection. Physical hunger and longing is our bodies are crying out to us that it needs the sustenance that it must have to survive. That hunger, that drive that is built into our bodies when it lacks food should mimic and teach us about that hunger and that drive of our spirit when it is not being fed from the Word of God. We'll get back to that more later. Let's look at why fasting was practiced in the Bible. Well, there are a variety of reasons why God's people in the Old Testament fasted. Some were communal fasts that were out in the open. Everybody knew about it. Everybody practiced it together. And others were very personal and done in secret. Well, the first mention of fasting in Scripture is when my, Moses went up to Mount Sinai. So I'd ask you to turn there with me. Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 27. Genesis and then Exodus 34, 27. 28. Now we read, the, word, the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moses, when he received the law from God, did not eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously, this is an example of what we call a supernatural fast or a supernaturally sustained fast. The body can survive 40 days without food. It's, it's maybe not a frequent thing, but it's not terribly uncommon to have people that will go on a 40-day fast from food. But the body cannot survive short of supernatural help for 40 days without drink, without water. Well, the, as mentioned before, there is only one regular time and occasion where God commanded Israel to fast. So turn just one book forward from there to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 34. And it shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourners within you, among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is the Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. 
And the priest who was anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be a statute forever for you that the atonement may be made for you for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Does anybody think I got the wrong passage? You do? Because you didn't hear the word fast, did you? I said that was the one time God commanded fasting directly, and I didn't say the word fast in that passage. What you did hear was twice them being commanded to afflict themselves for the Day of Atonement. Yeah. Well, what they were actually being called to when they were being commanded to afflict themselves was to afflict their bodies by denying them food. They were being called to fast. Some of you might have a footnote in your Bible in that passage that actually mentions that or that they shall fast. This was the time that once a year they gathered that the sins of Israel would be able to be placed on a scapegoat. And that scapegoat was to run off into the wilderness, never to be seen again, to picture the sins being carried away from the people. But since we know that the blood of bulls and goats never accomplished the forgiveness of sins, then we understand that this pointed forward to the Lamb of God who would take upon himself all the sins of his people. And rather than having to be done once a year, it was done once for all. So fasting was often tied to to the relationship between God's people and their sin before God. It was often tied to people mourning over their sin. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 6. Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. There's Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 6. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered there at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. It could also be for the mourning of other peoples. We have an account there where the nation mourned for their own sin as they returned to God. It can also be some of those practice for the mourning of others. If you turn forward to Nehemiah 1, 1 through 6. First and second Chronicles, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was at Susa, the citadel, that Hanai, 
one of the brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there is in the province who survived in exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Another example of that is in Ezra 10.6. We read, Ezra withdrew from the, before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. So when people, the people of God were aware, made acutely aware of their sin, it is a natural response to turn to fasting, to turn away from food, to turn away from the normal sustaining elements of his life, to seek the face of God in repentance that we might see his favor once more. We see fasting called for a number of times in the Old Testament when God's people faced great uncertainty or danger. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 20, 1 through 4. So we have 1st and 2nd Kings and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles, chapter 20, 1 through 4. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude has come against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hatzaron Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid to set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So when the king was terrified that enemies greater and stronger than were coming against them, the response of the people was not just to pray, not just to say, well, God has this, he'll take care of it. It was their end to fast collectively, all of them together, to seek the face of God. Another example of this kind of communal fasting is found in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. Chapter 4, 15 and 16. If you remember, this is the time when Esther was being asked. She was a Hebrew woman who had hidden her identity as a Hebrew and took on a Persian name. The Esther is her Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. When she was being asked by the Jews to be able to go before the king to plead for the safety of her people because of the schemes that had gone against them, knowing very well that if the king did not mercifully receive her, it was a death sentence to go before the king un unbidden. 
We read in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will fast also with you. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I think it's a natural response if you have to face some kind of extreme danger that you want to be at your your physical peak. You want to be at your best. Yet yet the people of God often responded instead by saying, let me weaken myself physically as much as I can between here and there by fasting, by spending all my energy on prayer and seeking the face of my God because that is where I am strong. The people of God in the Old Testament also fasted when they realized that they were about to face the judgment of God. Find an example of that in Joel chapter 1, 13 through 16. So Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. Put on sackcloth sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is not food cut off before eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God. We even have an example in Scripture of a pagan nation turning to fasting when they realized the judgment of God that would fall on them. Read of that in Jonah 3, 3 3-5. Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. This one will do a better job of testing my uh, memory of where things are at in my Bible. Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. So Jonah rose. Remember, Jonah tried very hard not to go to Nineveh. Didn't want to go there. Not because he believed that the people wouldn't repent. Uh, He was afraid that they might repent and God might relent. So zealous was he for their destruction. Read Jonah 3.3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Fasting was also a common response of the people of God in times of great affliction or spiritual distress. 
It's a couple examples from the Psalms. Psalm 69, 9 and 10. For the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Then I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. It became my reproach. Psalm 109, 21 through 24. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. Although I'm not going to have us turn there this morning, we also see times of people fasting in response to a tragic loss, such as when David and Bathsheba lost their first child, or the way that David fasted when he heard of the death of Saul and Jonathan. In all these different cases, for all these different reasons, fasting was a very common practice throughout the Old Testament for God's people, both collectively and on an individual basis. But what about in the New Testament? True, we don't have near as much discussion of fasting in the New Testament as we do in the Old, though it is clear that it was something that was still being practiced. In the beginning of Luke, in chapter 2, we have the account of the faithful widow and prophetess Anna, who was at the temple. It says she was at the temple day and night, fasting in worship of God, She was eager to see the redemption of Israel. She was eager to see the Messiah of God. And as her husband was long dead, she gave herself to being at the temple hour after hour, fasting and worshiping God. We have an account in Luke 18, 11 and 12, where John's disciples questioned Jesus' disciples of why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast and Jesus' didn't. Of course, we will look at that in a little bit. Of course, when we look, remember back in, earlier on in, the, cha- in uh, the book of Matthew that we've been studying, back to Matthew chapter 4, we have the account of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Recall then as the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested, that he went 40 days without food. 40 days. And the text said in one of the most kind of duh statements in all of Scripture, that he became hungry after 40 days of fasting. Well, when he was at his most exhausted, most tired, most aching in his body for food, the devil came to tempt him. This ordeal brought up memory of the 40 days of fasting with Moses when he received the law, or the 40 years of wandering in the desert and the wilderness from Israel when they refused to believe God and when they were afraid of the giants in the land and were cast out. And that whole generation had to die off before God would bring them to the land he had promised for them. The Messiah faced those same kinds of trials that Moses had faced, that Israel had faced, that everyone before him had failed, and he remained faithful and victorious. And we see a major piece of that coming through that 40 days of fasting. We have the account of Paul in Acts 9 after his conversion, that that mighty conversion as he's on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to persecute the church. He's on his way to go rip fathers from their families, to throw people in prison, to seek their death. That's what his purpose was in going to Damascus. And on the way, he was confronted by the risen Lord in glory as in the cloud. 
He was struck blind. And Paul spent three days and three nights with no food and no water. His response to that kind of encounter, that kind of eye-opening experience, his conversion, was to spend three days fasting, being cared for someone whom he had planned on persecuting when he got to Damascus. We also have the accounts of prayer and fasting accompanying major decisions among the apostles, particularly when they would be choosing who to send out as apostles and missionaries, or when they were deciding to name elders in different communities and churches that they had placed there. We see that in Acts 13 and Acts 14. It is true, we don't know a lot about what the early Christians, both in Scripture and afterwards, how they practiced fasting. But what we do see in the New Testament, and we know of in church history, leads us to believe that fasting continued to be a big part of the spiritual life of the church, yet not necessarily on a regulated or scheduled basis. With God's people already having the forgiveness of their sins, already knowing that they were at peace with God, the meaning and the intent, the purpose of Fasting sometimes looks different than it might have been in the Old Testament. Yet there is still that impulse in the Christian to mourn over sin. There's still that impulse when facing serious distress to search out the face of God in unique and special ways. And certainly, fasting was common enough in the first century that Jesus had to warn his disciples that they were not to fast in the way that the Pharisees had modeled for them. In Jesus' day, fasting was practiced most regularly by the Pharisees. As mentioned before, fasting was only commanded once directly from God, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Though over time, through the declarations of kings or leaders and tradition, the nation of Israel began to fast at four different holy days during the year. Of course, the Pharisees, just like they did in everything else, found a way with fasting to be able to single themselves out, to be able to go above and beyond what anybody around them was doing. And they fasted two days every week. From what I read, most likely it was Mondays and Thursdays. And that either had something to do with the traditional days that they believed that Moses went up to the mountain and then when he came back, or a more skeptical view is that Mondays and Thursdays were the busiest market days and the Pharisees wanted to go when they could show that they were fasting and the most people could appreciate their righteousness. What is clear explicitly in Jesus' words and implicitly elsewhere that the Pharisees did not fast because they were earnestly seeking the face of God. They did not fast because they were mourning over their sin or over the sins of the nation. They fasted so that they could look down on everybody else. They fasted so that others might see what they were doing and praise them. The Pharisees not only maintained a strict schedule for fasting, they made sure everybody would notice. They would not anoint their head with oil. 
Think back to our passage this morning where Jesus says, do not fail to do these things, to anoint your head with oil. He's talking about doing things that the Pharisees didn't do when they were fasting. They didn't anoint their head with oil or wash their face. It was the equivalent to somebody now going a couple days without shaving or not doing their normal grooming routine in the morning. Something to make sure that they looked a little bit more rough, that they looked as though they had been going through some hard time. I picture them walking around and making a big deal through the market about just how good all the food at the booth smelled around them, but they were sacrificing for God. Remember the account of the Pharisee's prayer and that of the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So what about us? Should we practice fasting? That's the important question. I think everyone's wanting to walk away here knowing, do I need to start practicing this this act of fasting? It isn't even mentioned in the New Testament once we get past the book of Acts. If you do a word study in the New Testament, once you get past Acts, the only time you'll see the word fast is someone holding fast to something. And the one time scripture commanded directly to fast no longer applies as our sins were covered and removed from us once for all in the atonement of Christ. Even so, I believe that yes, we ought to practice fasting Well, it should be enough that Jesus assumed his disciples were fasting. And I can find no compelling reason to think that his expectation that his disciples would fast was somehow tied only to their particular culture and day and age. We know that he wasn't talking about the national fasts. He was talking about those times that they chose because they had a spiritual purpose that overrode their desire for food. They chose to set aside food to pursue God. I don't see us having any less need to do that than those early believers. Top of that, we have the practice of the apostles even if they didn't go to length to to instruct us on fasting as they did a lot of other practices in the early church, we have their example of what they did. That when they faced consequential actions, when they faced times where they had to make big decisions, you saw them in prayer and fasting. We also have the testimony of 2,000 years of church history of confidence, if you did much of a search, you would find that we are fairly unique in our lack of practicing the spiritual discipline of fasting in our lives. So when we fast, as I believe we ought to fast, we must remember the words of our Lord and guard ourselves against the temptation that is common to men who are doing religious actions. We must guard ourselves against the desire to have our actions noticed. We must not do any act of spiritual devotion. We must not do any of our good works so that men will recognize and commend 
our righteousness. What it can convince us all that we should add regular times of fasting into our spiritual disciplines. I want to look at just a few reasons of why we should fast. First off, fasting is an act of piety directed toward God. It's an act of piety directed toward God. Just look at our passage today. We fast in secret, and our God who is in secret sees. This is an act that is between us and our God. It isn't for anybody else. We fast because we desire a unique experience with our Father who is in heaven. And we have of the promise of Jesus that when we seek our Father in heaven, he will see and reward. Well, as time went on, Jesus' disciples, at least those closest to him, did not actively practice fasting. You can read the account in Mark 2, where John the Baptist's disciples came and asked, why are your disciples not fasting? We fast. The disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus' response was not that it's okay, fasting isn't a thing anymore. Now his response was, they don't fast because I am here with them. They don't fast because God was walking the earth alongside them. They had communion with God in their presence. So they did not fast while Christ was with them. But yet he said there will come a time when they will fast, when the bridegroom will be taken up. And they would fast and they would once again deprive their body of nourishment so they could especially seek the face of God and commune with their Savior. Another reason to fast is that fasting is an act of worship. We read about that as again with that, the widow Anna at the temple when before Jesus was born, fasting and worship at the temple in anticipation of the Messiah. We should fast in those times where we dare not move where we dare not take another step without especially seeking the face of God. Beloved, there are times in our lives when we feel that we cannot think of ordinary things until we hear from God. Times where we are so overwhelmed by the weight of what we are experiencing that we don't know what to do. What should we do in those times if not fast and pray? Do you think you will find a better salve for your soul in trying to stay busy and trying not to think about those weighty things or in pills or in a bottle? We should fast when we have decisions of great consequence before us. This was modeled for us by the apostles themselves. When we have those kinds of decisions where it feels like our whole future is going to be shaped by how we respond to it. We should learn by the example of the apostles. We should fast when we have major things before us like, who should we marry? We should fast over the birth of our children in prayer for them. Prayer for what God would do with them, that he would save them. Prayer that we would be the kind of parents that we ought to be, that we would be found faithful. We should fast when we consider our calling in life, be that in ministry or in vocation. We should fast when we are deciding on which church to join. Or we should fast as a church when we are deciding on which men to set into biblical office. No, it is not a command of the Lord, yet we have example for us in Scripture. 
And it is clearly a good practice to devote ourselves specially to prayer, to seek the face of God when we are making such big decisions. And as a church, I pray one day we are in a position that we can collectively fast together as we decide on whom to send as we plant other churches. I pray that one day we get to struggle through that decision, that we get to deprive ourselves of food so that we can specifically pray for how God would have us plant more godly churches. We should also establish fasting as a regular part of our spiritual lives. So we have those extraordinary events, those major decisions, but it should also be something we just schedule that is a regular discipline in our lives. It is good, it is good to remind ourselves that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from our Father in heaven. Beloved, in fasting, we train ourselves to understand that just as the body feels near immediate effects when it's denied food, so too does our soul feel near immediate effects when we are far from God in his word and in prayer. We know it's true in our bodies. We need to be more aware that it's true in our souls. We fast because the hunger pains, the weakness, the physical longings can put our spiritual hunger, weakness, and longing into context. We fast because the grumbling of our bodies serves as a continual reminder of those needs that God has placed on our hearts. Truly how sad of a state it is for us that we are so easily reminded of our physical needs. Yet we so often have a hard time recognizing our spiritual need. So fast as an intentional means of searching out our spiritual weakness and nourishing those needs, particularly nourishing your spirit, even to the denial of your body for a time, so we might seek the face of God. Do you remember what the fourth beatitude is? Some of you might be able to get there if I give you a moment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All men hunger for bread that nourishes the body and for drink that quenches. In truth, though they don't know it, all men do hunger to fill that spiritual void they feel, but they don't recognize. Yet it is Christians who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not for the appearance of righteousness. Not so that others can think that they're righteous. But to be righteous. Christian hunger and thirst for righteousness, they hunger and thirst for it, and they find it in God alone. God is not just a means to their satisfaction. God is their satisfaction. They desire more of him, to know more of him, to be closer to him. That hunger drives them. It drives them at various times and various reasons to abandon all other hungers and to focus only on being closer to their God. To use the body's hunger as a tool to help us better understand and channel 
our hunger for God. So beloved, I am calling on all of us here and now to be a people who are so hungry for more of God that we set regular times in our lives to fast, that we take more time in our lives to focus on our hunger for God so we lay aside all other hungers and spend time in prayer and meditation with our God. I am not so much worried that it be something that we do weekly or monthly. I'm not so much worried that we fast for a week or for a couple of days or for a couple of meals. For some, even one meal might tax them very much physically and be medically questionable. I'm not looking to heap guilt on anyone who has special physical needs or special circumstances. But I do desire to motivate the rest of us to follow the example of the Old Testament saints, to follow the example of our Lord, to follow the example of the apostles, to follow the examples of the church throughout history and set regular times for fasting in our lives. And when you do this, set out at the beginning that you will focus on a specific, a specific objective or spiritual need in your life and set that before you primarily in prayer and meditation. Decide on some matter that you were going to devote yourself to, something that you want to be regularly reminded of each time your body aches for food, each time your stomach grumbles, each time you remember that you want something. Use that as a reminder to pray for that desire. Choose things like praying for victory over a spiritual struggle that you've been battling against. Or choose something like praying that your child would be saved or that someone else that you care for and love would come to faith. Or choose your desire for a greater passion for God and his word. Or your desire to see God move in power in our midst. Whatever it be, set time aside and choose something specific to seek the face of God for. I challenge you to set aside time soon to fast and pray for God's blessing on this church. Pray that God would strengthen our faith and our purity. Pray that God would cause us to grow in godliness. Pray that God would cause our numbers to grow. Pray that God would use this church to impact this community. And pray as though you hunger and thirst for God to be honored and glorified by his body more than you hunger and thirst for your next meal. If you can do so, choose a day in this coming week and set it aside to fast for this church. And if God so leads you again, do it next week again. And on and on until God calls your attention somewhere else in prayer, or he frees you from continuing in that. Do what you are able to do. It might look different for each person. But let us join together in prayer for this church to plead with God, to seek his face. And see what God will do when his people turn to him like that. Beloved, live as though we believe that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. 
I don't call you to become faithful in fasting because I have been particularly good or faithful in it. In fact, as I meditated on this subject in this text, I couldn't help but wonder how many times when a preacher has to go and preach on fasting, does he go ahead and quick fast for a day or two that week? So he doesn't feel like such a worthless hypocrite when he stands behind the pulpit and calls other people to do something that he doesn't do in his life. I am no great example of faithfulness in the spiritual discipline. Though as I have studied and prayed over this text and over fasting and scripture, I have grown in my desire to become so. I have fasted at various times in the past, even sometimes for some, with some regularity. At times I have pressed on in those, those, those seasons or those days out of just a sense of duty of my willpower, that I was going to last the amount of time I said I would do, and it did my soul no good. Other times I have fasted with a spiritual and edifying purpose in mind, and I have experienced, by the grace of God, greater clarity and sweetness in prayer and study. Times where I have been able to see, to a greater extent, my faithlessness before God, and I have realized how much more attention I give to my physical needs than my spiritual needs. This is not the only spiritual discipline I would call us on to pursue with greater fervor and devotion. Though, as I said before, it is likely the discipline that we most often neglect. And it just happened to be the next passage in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. One of the great things about fasting, though, if, if hunger pains isn't enough to get you excited, one of the other great things about fasting is that in this discipline, other spiritual disciplines are given a chance to gain focus and prominence in our lives. So fasting is a spiritual discipline that, that accentuates, accelerates, promotes other spiritual disciplines. Because it is never just fasting. It is fasting with prayer, fasting with study, fasting with meditation, fasting in the still and quiet, just waiting upon the Lord. Beloved, I do not heap burden on you this morning. Quite the contrary. I trust by the scriptures that I offer one of the gracious means of our Lord to ease our burdens. Would that we would be a people who are just as sensitive to our continual need for the things of God as we are for our continual need for food for our bodies. And beloved, physical hunger and fasting just might be able to teach us that lesson. Father, I thank you that you are more faithful than we are. Such an understatement. You are faithful. You need no qualifiers around that statement. You are faithful. Father, motivate us. Not by a sense of forced obligation, but by a sense of desire to know you more, to experience you more, to love you more. Motivate us to seek your face, to set aside normal pursuits, 
to set aside normal things in our life, to evaluate everything on what is best, to be willing from time to time to even lay aside those things that are good and necessary. We might have a special moment with you. Father, I don't pray for legalistic burden, but I do pray for gospel fervency to drive a desire within us that your spirit would create within us such a desire to seek your face that this would seem a blessing. That any tool that we might employ in our lives to be in more and greater communion with our Father in heaven would be seen as a blessed and a joyful thing. Help us to seek your face. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table of our Lord. This physical symbol that we are given, this physical action to take, this gift of God, another gift of God to strengthen our faith, to remind us of the truths of the gospel. Remind us as we take the bread and the drink into our bodies, as we consume those elements we're reminded that the sacrifice of Christ, his body, his blood, is the nourishment that we truly needed. That in Christ, we drink the water from which we will never be thirsty again. So if you are of clear conscience before God, not in your perfection, but in the perfection of Christ and your following of Him, then I invite you to come to grab of the elements and we will take them together in just a moment. Father, I'm so thankful for the various means of grace that you have given us. This table, ranking high among them, we can have this physical reminder of what it means to be in Christ. What it means to claim his broken body and shed blood for us. His death for us. His righteousness for us. You are good and gracious to know our needs. Strengthen our faith and cause us to walk in greater devotion and obedience to Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We were in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of it again, of this fruit into the vine, until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So even as we have all this discussion about using the tool of physical hunger to drive us towards greater righteousness, remember that it will not always be necessary. That one day we will be in the presence of our Savior, and there will be no more need for fasting because we will be with the bridegroom forever. Forever. 